No great way to transition. So let me just ask the question we're approaching today. When it comes to homosexual behaviors and practices, does the Bible affirm them as acceptable or condemn them as sin? (laughs) Some of y'all are already answering out loud. When it comes to homosexual behaviors and practices, does the Bible affirm it as acceptable or condemn it as sin? That's the basic question we're going to be answering for the first part of our time together today. The second part today will be spent hearing from a friend of ours who has uh, uh, graciously agreed to come and share some of his personal testimony with this uh, with this question, with this issue, uh, his experience with same-sex attraction. Uh, we're super grateful uh, for Barry to come and to share. Um, it takes a lot of strength. It takes a lot of courage. Uh, it takes real openness and willingness to say yes to what God's doing in one's life to do that. So we're super grateful uh, for that to be the case for us today. Thanks, Barry. Um, so that's kind of how we're doing this today. Um, so for the first part, the question is, when it comes to homosexual behaviors and, and uh, practices, does the Bible affirm it or condemn it? This is a question we're asking because unless you live under a rock or you have the fortunate circumstance of avoiding the Internet altogether, this is a question worth asking because um, you know churches and Christians, not even to mention the, the wider world, churches and Christians are sharply divided on this. It, it is a, a hot topic. And please know at the outset today, uh, this is today just going to be a a pretty cursory study. Um, We're going to try to condense a lot into one little message here. This is a cursory study of something that could take many, many weeks of study. In fact, we did a six-week series about two and a half years ago called Identity. So if you want a lot more uh, detail about some of the biblical account of these kinds of issues uh, from not just homosexual behaviors and practices, but to gender identity, same-sex attractions, and and, and so-called same-sex marriage, those kinds of things. Uh, We did that series two and a half years ago. You can look it up online. Um, And and so today is just going to be a couple key passages. Uh, If you want to know more, we've given you a a half sheet of paper in the hub um, that details the the, the basic scriptures that you can look through uh, that deal with this issue. Um, And so you can do that by looking in the hub, look them up uh, in your own. Uh, But today we only have time for a couple key passages, and I've chosen these in particular because they kind of set the biblical trajectory for how scripture talks about this issue. And as we dive in, I I grabbed my Bible early on here because it's important to note uh, that our answer to this question about homosexual behavior and practice assumes, at least here in this place, at at this church, that the scriptures are the authority for us. The scriptures are the authority, not our experience, not the world, not even our feelings, not the internet, and and not not our families and, and, and friends. But for the follower of Jesus, it is this book that interprets us. It is, it is the scriptures that tell us who we are. <laughs> and they interpret us and tell us how to live. And that is a fundamentally important issue before we talk about what anything <laughs> means for us personally. So hear this perhaps most importantly today as we begin. The scriptures tell us what our life's purpose is. 
At its most basic and fundamental level, the scriptures are our authority. And that begins right in the very beginning of the scriptures in Genesis 1. Pause for Amber Alert. (laughs) All y'all, get your phones. Mine's going off. Memphis, Tennessee. Check local media. Where were we? We were talking about Jesus or something. So, (laughs) our life's purpose is given to us if we believe that Jesus is Lord through the Scriptures. And that begins at the very beginning, Genesis 1. In fact, the first few chapters of Genesis are fundamentally important for this question. So turn with me there. Genesis 1, we're going to start in verses 26 through 8. We'll read that together in just a second and spend most of our time uh, in those verses. But we'll also refer to Genesis 2, 24. We're going to read those together in just a bit here. And before we get into that, let me set the tone here by, by making sure you understand this about the beginning chapters of the Scriptures. Many Christians like to approach Genesis as if it tells us all the important things about how the earth was made, which, duh, it does. However, the most important parts of Genesis are why the earth was made and what it tells us about our purpose as people. What is our role in the whole of God's creation? That is most important for Genesis. Read with me Genesis 1, 26 through 28 and 2, 24. Say this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, of the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. You may want to underline this part. We'll come back to it. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You may want to uh, underline that part in 28 that says, Be fruitful and multiply. We'll come back to that as well at some length. And then jump down to Genesis 2.24 real quick. This verse speaks to the means, the means of carrying out the commands we just heard to be fruitful and multiply. Genesis 2.24, reveal God's provision for fulfilling his purpose. It says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's worth underlining as well. We'll refer back to that part as well. So jump back into verse 26. It says this, then God said, nine times in the first chapter of Genesis, it says God said. Because when God speaks, it has power. When God speaks, boom, things happen. And this is an example of that here on the last day. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. If you're hearing some Trinitarian language there, good. This is sort of like a discussion within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Going on here at verses 26 and following, it says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, press pause here. We don't have a lot of time to explain all of what this means. But this, this idea of being made in God's image means a couple important things for us today. Two basic things uh, in basic terms. To be made in God's image means, number one, to be able to hear from and respond to God. To hear from and respond to God. And then also to do what he does. 
To be made in God's image means to be able to hear from and respond to God. And it means we also are created with some measure of ability uh, and responsibility to do what God does. Now, obviously, uh, God doesn't give us all supernatural power to do that in the same ways that he does. It doesn't mean we hear and respond uh, in, in some sort of perfect way. Our sin gets in the way of that, of course. Uh, and this, this image of God thing is more than just the ability, as we like to say, to have a personal relationship with God, though it, though it definitely includes that. One of the important things we often miss that I want us to hear today about this idea of being created in God's image is that to be made in God's image is about being created with the capacity to carry on his work. We were created with the capacity to carry on his work. If you don't get this at the beginning of the scriptures, you will continue to misread much of the Bible. It means we were created with the capacity to carry on, in some sense, God's work. We see this taking shape in the verses that we just read. Read with me. Verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. This is, remember, sort of the Trinity talking about uh, the principle that will be followed out here. Let them, meaning Adam and Eve, this is where it begins to take shape as a command to them, and let them have dominion, meaning power, oversight, responsibility. Let them have dominion. And he lists all the areas and the ways, the spheres, over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heaven, the livestock, over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. In other words, take, take charge of this creation I've made for you and carry on the work I began. Now, Genesis 2.15 says it this way, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. That word for put him in the garden... Some think it's the same kind of idea as planting. <laughs> like, like God the Father said, I'm going to take the man, I'm going to plant him in the garden so he will grow and he will become a caretaker just like I have done for him. So, because of that responsibility, verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Underline this, male and female, he created them. Which means God's intent... God's design, God's purpose for that to be carried out was creating them as sexual complements. C-O-M-P-L-E. <laughs> Not comp- uh. No jokes. And God blessed them. God blessed them and said to them, this is the first direct command to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it which is a way of saying carry on the work that I began and enabled you to do. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. To be made in God's image means that we are capable of receiving and carrying out God's commands in a way that mirrors the work of God in creation. So, according to Genesis 1, according to Genesis 2, and really the wider context of all of Genesis 1 to 3. Assuming that authority of Scripture holds sway in our lives. According to that context, we are supposed to carry on God's creative work 
to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and to be godly stewards and caretakers of creation. So what's this have to do with our question of does the Bible affirm or condemn homosexual behavior and practice? Simply this. If a fundamental purpose of humankind's existence is to fill the earth, how does that work without complementary heterosexual genitals that procreate? You may not like that I asked that question. That's okay. I'm telling you what I think God's design, if we assume that the scriptures are the authority for our lives, has to say about the purpose of our lives. If a fundamental purpose of humanity's existence is to fill the earth, how does that work without complementary heterosexual genitals that procreate? In other words, the God-given and the natural means of carrying on that work is a complementary male-female genital heterosexual union. That's how offspring are produced. Let me, let me shorten it by saying this. Procreation's a precondition for fulfilling God's commands when it comes to sexuality. Now, let me press pause for just a quick second. Quick parenthetical statement. <laughs> uh, we don't have all of the, uh, the time to unpack all of the ways that we are commanded to fill the earth and subdue it as making disciples like spiritual children for the Lord. Malachi 2.15, if you look that up later, it's a cool way of summarizing that. What God's looking for is godly offspring. And we could talk about how Genesis is the beginning of the Great Commission. We could talk about all that. We could talk about all the ways in which uh, we can still multiply non-sexually, whether we're married and we can't have kids, or we're unmarried, or we're celibate, or we have homosexual desires or practices or not, all that kind of stuff. I'd be happy to talk about that later. But we are confining this to this question of whether or not God's design and his intent for sexuality is a complementary heterosexual union that fills the earth. And it's clear that in Scripture, the ability to procreate is a precondition for fulfilling God's command of being fruitful, at least when it comes to the sexual mechanics. This is why, this idea is why, when it comes to talking about matters of sexuality uh, in the Scriptures, uh, there are lots of phrases like, according to nature, or, or after their kind, uh, and also the opposite of this, contrary to nature. Romans 1 is a great example of that, if you'll look that up later. Uh, those become recurring motifs, ways of talking about how it is that God fulfills that purpose through us after his likeness. Same idea. Those become recurring motifs that appear throughout the entire Old and New Testaments as well as in early Jewish and Christian commentary on the scriptures and Jewish and Christian commentary about critique of the outside world. In fact, contrary to what you'll sometimes hear, Jesus himself actually has something to say that fits with this trajectory of God making things in a sexual complementary kind of way. You'll, you'll often hear, Jesus had nothing to say about this issue. Well, actually, he did, and I'm going to show you where. He picks up this assumption that we talked about in Genesis 1. He picks it up 
God's idea of the intent and design for procreation in Genesis 1 and 2. He picks that up in Matthew 19, 3 through 6. We're going to spend just a few minutes here uh, looking at how that works here in Matthew 19, uh, 3 through 6. It says this, The Pharisees came up to him and tested him. This is one of the many times in the New Testament one of the many times where they come and try to test him. Um, and it says, they test him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? There are two very contested schools of thought on this, and we're not going to flesh all that out. But here's what Jesus does. Notice this. He responds by reminding them of this biblical trajectory from Genesis that I talked about. He says this, verse 4, he answered... This is kind of funny, by the way. Have you not read? (laughs) Like, hello, they're Pharisees. They've read it. They know the Hebrew. They're wearing the (laughs) T-shirts. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? By the way, this is the first original Jesus juke. Just letting you know. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Remember, that's a phrase that comes from Genesis 1.27. Have you not read, Pharisees, that in Genesis, God made them male and female to complement one another, giving them different body parts so that they could do what God had commanded them to do because God gave them the way to fulfill the commands. He provided the way for them to fulfill the commands. And then he quotes also from Genesis 2.24. Keep reading. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said... Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's straight out of Genesis 2.24. And Jesus himself is saying that when a man and a woman come together in marriage, they are together in a way, in a special way that is a unity. They complement one another to fulfill God's instruction of being fruitful and multiply. So, verse 6, they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now God's intent for sex, which is meant for marriage and not for non-marriage, God's intent for sex is to carry out God's purposes in the world. And the complementarity of male and female is quite literally the only way that particular purpose is carried out sexually. As a way of saying, this is God's design and intent. So for the question of does the Bible affirm or condemn homosexual behavior and practice, it very plainly condemns it in a number of places other than just the two or three we've mentioned today. Um, Now, here's the question for us now. What What about when life doesn't turn out as God intends? This is a tough question. This is a good question. And let's be real. This is where a lot of us live from Monday through Saturday because it's really easy on the one hand to say this was God's intent and to stand here for an hour on Sunday and say this is how it is. (laughs) And yet some of us have friends and family who have struggled with these kinds of things. Immediate, extended family. Uh, Some of us have ourselves struggle with same-sex attraction. (laughs) 
These are issues that hit home for us. And we're not going to be, answered, uh, be able to answer today all of the, the very practical ways that we could answer this question. But how do we, as Christians, how do we as a church, how do we respond to friends and family or perhaps ourselves when we have these kinds of struggles? Uh, I'm going to ask our friend Barry to go ahead and come forward uh, and to share Uh, some of the beginnings of that question we're asking. Here at FCC, we have nine habits, one of which is called Tell the Story. And uh, Barry has graciously agreed to tell the story of God's work in his own life uh, through his struggles with same-sex attraction. Um, So uh, we're super grateful to you, Barry, uh, for coming and uh, visiting and sharing with us. So... Good morning. Thank you. I didn't know my name was on the screen last service. So my name is Barry, and um, at Regeneration, we, we began by saying, my name is Barry, and I have a new life in Christ. And in a minute, you will understand exactly why that is significant to me now. But, um, you know, I, I, when I was asked to come, I wasn't sure exactly what I want to say the first service. I wasn't sure what I was going to say, and and I think it would probably be a little different each time. But what I wanted to convey was just what my life experience was. And Scott's saying that when life doesn't happen the way that you expect it to, I mean, there's some things that we don't have control over when we admit it in the end. Um, I was raised in a a very rural area. Um, I had a father that was very, um, very, I don't want to say abusive. He was very... He was very angry, and I was kind of terrified of him. I didn't want to be left alone at home with him. So I, I really didn't have a role model of a father in my life. Um, and a lot of things come together. You have your interactions in your school. Uh, you go to school, and you got a kid that doesn't really seem like he knows what's going on, so everybody sees that, and that's the one they pick on, right? So I was the guy, the guy that was always getting picked on in school because I was insecure. I wasn't sure how to be, and... And so basically what happened with, with my life was is that uh, I, was, um, I, I had a sexual encounter with a relative when I was younger, around age nine, and it caused some confusion for me. I wasn't sure. I'm like, okay, so people are saying, oh, you're gay or whatever. And I'm like, am I? I don't know. I mean, how do you deal with that as if you're eight, nine, ten years old? And if you're not talking to your parents, who are you talking to? And so for folks that are parents in here, I mean, it's, it's difficult, I'm sure, for you guys to, to figure out how do you talk with your kids. But uh, when a kid doesn't know what's going on and the parent's not there for them um, and they don't have anyone else come up in their life as a role model, then they're going to look to try to find help somewhere. And I looked for help from friends. Um, I'd turn to friends and try to talk, hey, is this? And, you know, of course, we know how bad things are in the schools these days. It was not so bad then, but it's still... You know, everybody takes that and they go, oh, he's gay, you know. And and so I, I learned really quick as I tried to find help and talk to friends or try to talk to pastors at church that um, it wasn't a topic that I could actually be very open about without pretty much finding rejection at every turn. Even though I hadn't actively moved into this, this lifestyle or moved into uh, acting out or the behavior, I don't I like how you put that, it's a behavior, um, but I was struggling with it. Is this my identity? And I didn't know until just recently that it's not an identity. It's a behavior. Um, and the world wants to tell us different. Um, so the thing was that I did was that I would look for help. I went to um, a church and um, 
I shared with a youth pastor the struggle I was having. I didn't know I was growing up. I didn't know what's going on. You know, I'm going through these changes in my life. I'm unsure. I've had this happen. And the youth pastor himself was struggling. He's married with two daughters. Just to give you perspective, he's struggling with this, and he molested me for over a year. And (laughs) it gets me every time. So um, it's just difficult to share that. I'm sorry. But... We don't know. I mean, we think, oh, oh, this person's married. There's, It's just there's so much of this that goes on, we don't talk about it. And we need to talk about it. And what happened for me was is that I started looking for counselors, I'll, Christian counselors. One counselor, I go in his office, Baptist Theological Seminary or, you know, Dallas Theological Seminary. Do you want me to help you learn how to accept yourself this way or help you change? And I'm looking at this on the wall like, what? You know, I'm raised in church. I accepted Jesus as my Savior when I was nine, but all I know is I'm supposed to do right. I'm supposed to do this. So the Bible says that if, I, if I'm homosexual, I do this, and I'm going to hell. So I'm, I'm terrified. How do I get out of it? So I go to Christian counselors. I go to friends, that pastor. And all I'm getting from every side is, okay, let, this group over here, let's pray the demons out of him. This one, you need to read and pray more. And you need to, you know, God can help you and all this, but nobody knew what to do. And looking back now, I can say that, but at the time, I wasn't too happy with it. And I was, in fact, I became extremely bitter with the church in general um, because of the fact that um, I was I was lost as far as a kid and growing up. And so what happened was I didn't develop relationships with people. Now, my story is my story. I want you to understand that you're going to have folks that are going to say, hey, I'm born that way. Or hey, this happened. Or I wasn't molested, so you know that you know it's it's okay that I'm this way. There's so many different factors that it's not worth the time to discuss. Why are you where you are? The deal is that a person is in this situation; they're hurting. A lot of times they might not admit it because the world wants to say, "Hey, you should be proud. That's the way you are. That's who you are." And that's the message they're getting now these days. So I've got all these messages coming in. I'm growing through this, and. I can't find any help. The one person tries to help me molest me. And, and then I, I'm, I'm getting counseling at like 16, 17 years old from people. You know, you're supposed to have parental consent. Um, I had a couple of people that were counseling me because I was terrified for my parents finding out. And they agreed to do it and were trying to help me. And I couldn't get help. Um, and the longer that you go in something like this, the more that your mind, and, and some of you that are older will know what I'm talking about, the older that we get, the more that we get set in our ways. The more that we, if we find there's something about us that we want to change, then we kind of set it. And it takes a little bit more work, you know, and, and it takes a little bit more effort to change. And so what happened with, with me was I didn't develop good relationships, and I started looking for my, my self-worth, my value, and looking for love and sexual encounters with other men. Um, it's, uh, it's as ugly as it may seem to a lot of people, and that's okay. Um, I'm not here to be to be looked on as as you know perfect because that's only God Himself, right? Uh, but the deal is, is that it spiraled out of control in my life. And the the problem, the biggest problem is, is that I couldn't bring this out, especially in the church, and talk to anybody about it and be okay. And so, as a result of it, I isolated. And I hid. And that's the worst thing you can do. If, with a crowd this big, I mean, not to make you uncomfortable, there's at least two or three, at least four or five possibly have dealt with it or dealing with it, if not directly themselves. 
And that's just the, the matter. Of the, that's just the truth of the matter. I know the statistics. And so the problem is, is how do we get to an environment in the church where that we can talk about it, to where that we can love people? I want to show you what it looked like in my life. So I'm trying to find help, and all I'm getting is, uh, hey, God loves you, you know, and I'm, I'm hurting, right? And, I, and I'm just going further and further into this. And I knew that it was wrong, and I knew I needed to change my life. But I'll tell you, 30 years of dealing with this, you would think by that time with everything I've tried, I would have figured it out. And it's not any different from anything else. I know we all say there's no, that my sin is no worse than yours or this or that. And I hear that a lot. But the fact is, I want to ask you guys a question to think about. How many people do you know that you've heard about in your lifetime can stand in front of you and say that God delivered them from a homosexual lifestyle? I mean, how, how many times do we hear it? And so the next question I'll ask is, why not? The reason, thank you, the reason we don't hear about it is because the church isn't being the church. It's uncomfortable to talk about this. It's not for me. I mean, I'll, I'm, I'm, I'll get in people's face, and it makes them uncomfortable. So I try not. I try to be loving and be like, "Hey, listen, I'm not going to be too hard on you." But the deal is this. We need to understand that people are broken. I was emotionally broken. I was a mess. I manipulated people to try to feel loved. And when I try to get around people, they don't want to be around me because they don't want to get around the mess. There's so much more things they'd rather do than to get around it, to get around me. And so the deal is, is that Second Corinthians 5 says that as Christians, we're ambassadors of Christ. So what I do as a Christian basically says, this is who Christ is. Okay, so I'm reading my Bible, and God says he loves me, and he, that he desires to, 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 to love on me as his son. But when I'm going to church, I've got, hey, listen, you know, God loves you. Yeah, I love you. Yeah, hey, you know, I hope you get through this. Nobody's willing to, you know, to come up and put your arm around you. And, do, and, and, and it's not comfortable. It's not, and I get that. And so I'm not bitter anymore like I was. I left the church 10 years because I was bitter. But there's a point where we have to start asking, why are we not doing this? Why are we not seeing the change? And the reason is is because we ourselves personally don't realize exactly how broken we are. And that includes me. I'm not looking at and judging a single one of you. So I ask myself, what is it that I'm not seeing? And what I wasn't seeing is that God loves me. I went into regeneration at, at uh, Grace Fellowship. Um, and this is a journey. It's not like regeneration fixes everything. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a life journey, right? It doesn't end. But I went into regeneration, as a, and God had already been working in my life and starting to catch the fact that I wasn't, you know, I'd tell myself, oh, God loves me, you know. But I, and inside, really, if I thought it, I hate myself. God hates me. There's no way he can love me, right? What it comes down to is I started to realize at Regeneration that as I'm in this group of people, or in this group with, with other guys, that I started to be able to share things, and the guys themselves had already realized that they'd come to the end of themselves too, and they were broken. And they just looked at I was waiting for them to reject me, just like I'd always gotten. And these guys just looked at me and said, hey, man, we love you. It's okay. And sure, it was probably uncomfortable for them, I'm sure it was. I'm uncomfortable with them talking about drinking. I don't care to drink. <laughs> you know, it's just, but it's just, 
it's just that they love me through it. And so I started to realize the two things that needed to happen in order to change personally was first and foremost that I realized that God and his nature and how he loves me, that he pursued me for 30 years plus, <laughs> and that he loves me with an unfailing love, and he's the only person that will not fail me. And the second thing is, and this is what's so crazy, I am broken. I am a mess. And if every one of us admitted the thoughts that we have and the things that we deal with, if we really were to put them out there, we wouldn't want everybody to see them, right? And I'll just stand here and tell you, you know, I'm broken. I'm imperfect. So I've tried to put the two together. How can God love me like that? And the truth is he does. And that changed my life. When I started to see it from his people in that group, so why 30 years? Maybe because I needed to be here today. I still love him and I trust him for that and I'm not bitter at him for that at all. I'm thankful for the fact that I've come through what I've come through so I could stand here and share with you that God loves every single person in this room for what you're struggling with, whatever it is, minor, major, it doesn't matter. And if I can, I can also say that if, if God can free me from something that's got, had such a, such a hold on me, there's nothing he can't do. January 10th of this year, I was freed from homosexual lifestyle by God's grace. And I just want to thank him for it. And I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to share it. Thanks so much, Barry, for having the courage, uh, the strength to be open uh, about your experience. It's helpful for us to hear. Uh, and to be encouraged about uh, God's work in your life. Uh, so how, how, how does the church, how do we as Christians respond? Let me just summarize by saying this. When we become a community of people that learns to deal deeply and biblically with sin at a personal level, we become a community that can help others deal deeply and biblically with their sin and the consequences. Doing so is messy. It's messier than Christians like. Uh, But if the gospel's real, if Jesus did come out of an empty tomb and, and freedom from the effects of sin in our lives is attainable because the gospel actually does what it says it does in our lives, then we will be on the ground with people who struggle with sin because we are in that same process. If you're not dealing with the sinful patterns and behaviors in your own life, what makes you think you'll be able to do that with others in a meaningful way that doesn't, like Barry said, end up pushing them away. When we become a community of people who learns to deal deeply and biblically with our personal sin, we learn how to shepherd others in that same process. Let's pray, friends. Lord, we're grateful for your son, Jesus Christ, and that in him we have forever relationship with you we would never otherwise have.
We ask, Lord, that you would continue to teach us and shepherd us through your word that instructs us, through the Holy Spirit that gives us life, through a community of believers around us that helps us learn. Father, give us the strength and courage to say yes to this process. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.